Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, the world of business and finance. I'm Henry Trix. I write The Economist's Schumpeter column on the inner workings of corporate giants. But I'm moonlighting on the podcast today to bring you a respite from the whiplash ride that has been the weekly news cycle. We're going to take a longer view of a year that has really been like no other. 2020 has been marked by tragedy and trauma It's almost unrecognisable from the year that we envisaged as we sat snugly in the studio a year ago, eyeing our mince pies. But it's also produced incredible stories of tenacity, innovation and survival. And even at times, in the world of business and finance, a remarkable euphoria. So with me on this virtual tour of the year that was are three Money Talks regulars who've somehow managed to keep a show on the road despite everything that's happened this year. Let me start with Alice Fullwood. She is The Economist Wall Street correspondent. Hello, Henry. Joining us from Shanghai is our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. Welcome, Simon. Great to have you. Hi, Henry. And Patrick Fowles is the leader of the pack as our business affairs editor. Delighted to be here, Henry. Let's start straight away with your stories of the year. 2020 is, of course, the year of the COVID-19 pandemic and of a tumultuous American presidential election. But behind that, there have been lots of other stories. And I want to hear about the events, the trends, the transformations, the upsets that have shaped your various beats this year. So, Alice, let's start with you with dispatches from Wall Street. Sure. My story of the year has probably got to be just what a remarkable year it's been for the US stock market in 2020. American stocks lost a third of their value between the end of February and the end of March as investors reacted to the news that COVID-19 was spreading globally. But the market's recovery, prompted initially by the announcement of Fed intervention, has been a really remarkable thing to watch. And it's run through basically every story that I've covered this year, from the crazy bull run in tech stocks, also the sort of unbelievably poor year for the extremely popular strategy of value investing championed by the likes of Warren Buffett. You've seen this renaissance in retail trading and small investors. Even the sort of reaction of stocks to the US election was pretty surprising. The tight race in the swing states was supposed to be this doomsday scenario for stocks. We didn't find out the results of the election for four or five days. There have been slews of lawsuits. Trump has refused to concede. And stocks have been like Teflon. They've kept going up and they're now up by around 15% year to date. Yeah, it's been an incredible year. I wonder what, as you stared at the screen, what caused you kind of more surprise? The absolute collapse in March 
or the unbelievable recovery? It's it's got to be the the recovery. You know, stocks collapsing on the idea that sort of businesses were going to be shut down was obviously terrifying and dizzying to watch. But it was you know people were behaving as expected. This imperviousness that stocks have had to sort of any bad news has really been scary in a different way. It was scary when stocks fell in in March, but it's sort of uneasy that they're rising so so relentlessly now. Simon, let's uh, let's turn to you. I mean, the coronavirus kicked off in China, but it's been pretty much under control since the spring. So uh, back to normal, has it been since then? Well, economically, it's definitely a strange kind of normal in the sense that activity domestically has, has resumed full throttle. Uh, but obviously, nobody's crossing any borders. You have to get a PCR test before you can be admitted to a hotel, especially if you're a foreign journalist who they might want to keep away. But I, I mean, the biggest story beyond COVID that I've been following this year has been the Ant IPO and ultimately the Ant non-IPO. You know, the valuation was going to come somewhere north of $300 billion. If you looked at gray market trading, it was potentially going to be up to $500 billion in a matter of days. It would have made it the world's most valuable financial services company of any kind. And then lo and behold, two days before the IPO, the regulators pulled the plug on it. The apparent excuse was that new regulation was coming down the pipeline, which was going to significantly disrupt Ant's business model. The real explanation is that Jack Ma, who's the founder, had given a speech where he was very critical of Chinese regulation. The speaker just before him was Wang Qishan, one of the senior leaders of the country, who's also one of the architects of China's financial system, such as it is. And so that rattled some cages in Beijing. So a lot of people looked at it initially as this is an example of the limits on entrepreneurs in Xi Jinping's China. But there also seems to be global resonance. So you now look at you know what's going on in America with Facebook facing potentially quite serious regulatory action from the antitrust side. You could argue that Ant is important, not just for what it says about China's regulatory landscape, but also for kind of the coming wave of regulation uh, of big tech globally. Have you got any thoughts on that, Patrick? Yeah, well, I think it sort of captures the strange combination of authoritarianism and and technological superiority that is at the heart of Xi Jinping's vision for China. Payments is a fantastic example of where it is just years ahead of the West. And yet at the same time, the story seemed to sort of capture the pitfalls and dangers of China's state-driven model of capitalism when the person running the state has become increasingly unaccountable and really more and more of a dictator even. So Patrick, you as business affairs editor oversee all our business, finance and economics journalism. And and, uh, I should tell listeners that you um, are also behind many of the cover stories that we produce. What story has really stayed with you this year? Well, I think the big story looking back is the huge size and increase in size of government. I was reading Barack Obama's memoirs recently, and he goes through the agonising decision about whether the government should step in during the financial crisis and how far it should go. Well, there was no agonising this time around because governments everywhere went absolutely ballistic. Uh, Lots of Rubicons have been broken. You know, for example, the Fed has effectively backstopped the junk bond market, which 20 or 30 years ago was the realm of speculators and crooks. It also just raises some mind-boggling longer-term questions. How far is the implicit guarantee the government gives the private sector going to go? Can capitalism really work 
if that guarantee exists. How far might central banks' missions be expanded? Can they solve climate change? Might they be able to address racial injustice in America? That's now a live question. Uh, As our cover in December showed, the consequences for inflation are important. And then lastly, I think it opens up really interesting questions about whether there's a more efficient way for the government to to help people. Um, Central bank digital currencies might be one way of doing that, where the public, for example, might have direct accounts with the government so it can give money to them. And it's interesting that does tie in with the Ant story because one of Ant's long-term competitors might not be a Chinese company, but might be the Chinese government, which is keen to do some fintech innovation of its own. Yeah, and of course it ties in with Alice's story as well, the uh, the incredible boom in markets. Well, Henry, I hesitate to ask a columnist who's produced, I think, 50 columns this year, what the story of the year is for you, given you've had a lot of choice. But tell us your option. Well, well, my story of the year actually uh, goes back to a column that I wrote at the very beginning of January in 2020. I described this as the start of a do-or-die decade for big oil, and I was totally wrong. It was a do-or-die year for big oil. (laughs) We are moving into an era where you can't really talk about big oil anymore. You have to talk about big energy. If you look at the share prices, for example, of companies like ExxonMobil or Royal Dutch Shell, I mean, they've been clobbered during the course of this year. Meanwhile, some of those formerly very dowdy parts of the energy industry, that is the utilities, the electricity utilities, have become kind of golden boys. There was a moment this autumn when Next Era Energy, a very strong renewables producer in America, was valued higher than ExxonMobil, which only a few years ago was the biggest listed company in America. Clearly, there's a lot to be done to be able to move away from fossil fuels. We ain't there yet at all. But it seems as though this was the year where the transition was really taken seriously for the first time. And just to add to that, uh, Henry, I mean, one of the big Phillips for the transition is coming from this side of the world, from China, where they announced uh, back in October that they're aiming for full carbon neutrality by 2060. For them, it's not so much phasing out oil as it is phasing out coal power. China's entire coal capacity right now adds up to about 660 gigawatts. To put that into perspective, that's the entirety of the power generation capacity of Europe. So it's one of the few sectors that foreign companies are incredibly bullish on the opportunities in China because they know that the only way that China can get there is going to be with the solar capacity and the wind turbine expertise of companies around the world, especially from Europe. So it's going to be, you know, in terms of the drivers of money and investment, one of the absolute big megatrends. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So this next round is going to be a test of your quizzing skills. 
which should have had plenty of workout during all those interminable Zoom quizzes that I'm sure you've been doing on a Friday night. So I want to hear your number of the year. That is a statistic or a figure that made your jaw drop. I don't want you to give it away. You can tell us the number, give us a suitably obscure clue and leave it to us to guess or fail to guess the story behind the stat. So my number is 100 million. And my clue here is really for Alice. Vincent Lantomassi. Does he mean anything to you? Yes, he is the TikTok investor that I quoted in the first line of one of the stories that I wrote about the rise of retail trading. So 100 million um, could be, it's not the number of subscribers to Wall Street Bets. 100 million, is it um, people on TikTok? You've got it. It is people on TikTok. The daily active users. Fantastic. In in America, I I should add. Who would have thought it? I mean, a year ago, I think we were all scratching our heads to wonder what on earth this strange TikTok phenomenon was. Not only has it become, you know, a a fascinating social media story, it's become part of a bidding war, the center of a geopolitical dispute. And now, I guess, even potentially, uh, it will have a cameo role in the Facebook antitrust suit because its existence and its very success raises questions about what a monopoly is. So let's move on to you, Patrick. Okay, well, my number is uh, 113%. And my clue is that there is room for it to go higher. I'm going to guess that it's something year to date then, or like year on year, in which case there's still time left for that number to grow. And what could... um... Any other guesses? I'm I'm thinking it. I'm thinking it's a... Airbnb. Oh. Airbnb's IPO price jump. Alice, you're on fire. Alice, you're... you're... <laughs> this is incredible, yeah. It's the, the first day rise in Airbnb's share price after its IPO. It sort of symbolises the turnaround this year, really. At the start of the pandemic, Airbnb seemed like toast, really. I mean, who would want to go and stay in an apartment belonging to someone you've never met? By the end of the year, the prospect of the vaccine uh, changing habits meant that Airbnb was ready to IPO. And then this huge supersized boom in stock markets has meant that its reception's been absolutely euphoric. And it's it's achieved a, a valuation at the moment, at least, of over $100 billion, which is genuinely incredible. I think I read that it's worth more than Marriott Hilton and basically every other listed hotel company combined. And it earned some sort of small number of hundreds of millions last year, and they earned like $7 billion or something. It's really, really remarkable. So Simon, why don't you give us your number and try and make it so difficult that uh, Alice can't get it? (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll give it my best shot. My number is 40 percentage points. And my clue is governments, companies, and people. Um, So is this... The increase in debt to GDP? That is it. This is the global increase in the the total debt to GDP ratio, more so in developed markets than developing markets, but obviously a global phenomenon, the twin effect of all the debt that has been issued, the credit stimulus around the world, 
taking different guises in different markets, obviously much more focused on keeping consumers um, and companies aloft in the West, in emerging markets much more on keeping governments aloft, um, often you know, with the help of, of foreign creditors and their forbearance, and then coupled with the fact that nominal growth slowed so dramatically. Um, and so raising the question in 2021, whether or not that's going to continue or, or whether or not that will begin to slowly be unwound. Fantastic. Alice, I think we turn to you, try and make one that I can get um, <laughs> because I'm really lagging behind here. Okay, so my number of the year is 650%. And my clue is that that's probably already wrong because it's probably already gone even higher. Tesla's. Tesla share price. Tesla is correct. Henry, click on the buzzer. Yes. Managed to scrape a scrape <laughs> I, a I was in speaking there. at the exact same time. <laughs> oh, Simon, Simon, unfortunately, your, your connection is, uh, is a little slower than, than Henry's. I think I, I demand host privilege. <laughs> <laughs> basically, if you were going to pick one company that sort of really epitomised this remarkable tear that stocks have been on, uh, the sort of favoured darling of retail investors, but also some of the things that Henry's touched upon with at the forefront of the sort of car energy revolution. It has been a good year for Tesla. They turned a profit for the first time. I remember talking about the Tesla bubble back in February. So if you had listened to me then, you would have lost an awful lot of money. Elon Musk is now worth $150 billion and his wealth has increased this year by the net worth of Bill Gates. He's gained a Gates in a year. I, it's, it's, um... Couldn't have happened to a nicer person. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing about Tesla, I think, is it combines two manias. One is the tech mania, and then the other is the new mania for climate stocks, so so companies that are part of the green revolution. So it's, it's sort of two manias in one. And if you think 650% is big, then look at the Tesla clone in China, that is NEO, and it's up more than a thousand percent this year. Yeah, I mean, it's, Tesla's growth means that it's now sort of a, a really, really valuable company as well. That's my excuse for, for its rise being as remarkable. I think it's worth about $600 billion now. Moving on to round three, this is an innovation for 2020. I hope you've each brought along an everyday item that you've found around the house. But this isn't your run-of-the-mill show-and-tell. Oh no, each item is another clue to something that happened during the past 12 months. So you might need to give us a few nudges. Alice, can we start off with you? What have you bought for us? Sure. I have an excuse first, which is that I was originally going to bring a sourdough starter um, and do like a stock market bubble type idea. But then I decided that I talked too much about stock market bubbles. So I came up with a random last minute one instead. And I tested it on my dad. And he said, my God, Alice, that's convoluted. <laughs> so fair warning, this is not this is not a trivial one to get, but I will hold up my uh, my everyday items now. Um, so here you go. I don't know whether you can all see these. Oh, had the labels the wrong way around. So I have three cans. One is the sort of turquoise label of, of Heinz baked beans. One is chickpeas and the other one is tuna. So does this have anything to do with fast moving consumer goods or? It really doesn't. Food companies? It's more. No. Nope. Think sort of, I have absolutely no idea how to get to my own answer now. Um, if you were like gearing yourself up for a long journey, you might take along a bunch of. Rations. Provisions. Provisions is correct. Bank bad debts. Ooh, yes, Patrick. Bank bad debts. <laughs> Together. Yes. Together we got there with quite extensive <laughs> clues. 
Um, so yes, this this is the sort of other other bank story of 2021 from my patch is the whopping loan losses that banks have provisioned for. It's around $60 billion and, and counting. Uh, they put both of that through in the second and third quarters. Now we're waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting to see whether those losses materialise. And that will be a huge story for the banks next year. That's great. Okay, Simon, what have you brought for us from China? Well, what I, what I had brought for you, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot away from it. I'll just let you know, I was going to show you this. I don't know if you can see, it's a plug socket. Yeah. Yep. It was going to refer to something that we've already been discussing ad nauseum, the rise of the electrification of all things, including automobiles and therefore Tesla, which I think we're, we're, we're done talking about in the show. <laughs> um, so I'm going to pivot and I'm going to give you a different clue. I love this improvisation. This is fantastic. This is now what I'm going to hold up. It's a sort of slipper. It's a gray slipper which looks as though it's just come out of your washing machine. Uh, it, I can tell you, unfortunately, this has not been in the washing machine for many, many months. <laughs> if you were in the same room, you would probably know that. <laughs> um, anything to do with loungewear? Yeah. People not getting yeah. dressed and buying suits and stuff? Exactly. I think we're all, at this point, painfully familiar with you know many, many months of being uh, cooped up in our homes. And it's been remarkable to see how businesses have adjusted to this world. And of course... One of the questions then heading into 2021 is, you know, to the extent that normality does resume, how many of the practices that we've developed and adopted this year um, are going to outlive the pandemic? Great. Let's turn to you, Patrick. What's your mystery item? Okay, my mystery item is a large bottle of Defendor (laughs) hospital grade antibacterial hand gel for the prevention of swine flu, MRSA and bird flu. The PPE industry. That's exactly right. So we've been talking about Airbnb and Tesla and the glamour stocks, but the real action for investors has been among the far more humble companies that clean toilets, uh, kitchens, bathrooms. You, you can look at a couple of firms. One is Clorox in the US, which makes all sorts of cleaners. Here here in Europe, there's the Anglo-Dutch firm Reckitt Benkiser uh, that makes Lysol and Dettol. Reckitt Benkiser had actually been about to spin off its home cleaning division before the pandemic. (laughs) Thank God it hadn't quite got to to making that deal happen because uh, the business boomed volumes up over 20% in the last quarter. I posit that they're the real winners from the pandemic boom. True story from my end in China. Just, Just today, in fact, Um, I was taking a taxi and I pulled out a hand sanitizing wipe. Now, at the beginning boom of of all of this stuff being produced, a lot of the liquor makers got into the business because, of course, they had very, very strong alcohol and they could use the distillate to make hand sanitizers as well. So I opened up the wrapping and the taxi driver, without even turning around, said, Oh, that's Hongxing Arguotuo. That's that's Red Star White Liquor. It's a favorite Chinese liquor. That's 104 proof, isn't it? And I said, no, it's a hand sanitizing wipe. It's 9:30 in the morning. I'm not drinking hard liquor right now. But he was right. It's it smelled exactly like it. Fantastic. Well, uh, maybe I should segue straight on from 100% proof Chinese booze to mine, which is a. Uh, less than a pint of milk. I have to say that you will only get this if you are an utter Schumpeter geek. But it does relate to an interesting story that has emerged over the course of this year. Milk, anyone? 
Is this the failed Chinese bid for the for the Australian lion dairy? No, I'm afraid it's more obscure than that. You, you had an article, Henry, about whether drinking culture was dead. Yes, I haven't become a teetotaler and turned to milk. <laughs> um, no, it's actually something to do with, well, with music. <laughs> Let me tell you, because I just, I love this story. <laughs> so you know how you basically had to come up with extraordinary ways to report because there was basically, you couldn't go anywhere. So I was going down to Somerset to see my parents and I was writing on the music industry and I suddenly thought, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll just pop into the site of the Glastonbury Festival. And there I'll look at one of the great cancelled gigs of the year. And it has been a tragic year, I guess, for musicians and music fans. But the reason for the milk is that Michael Evis, who's the uh, the, the supremo <laughs> behind uh, the Glastonbury Festival, he first decided to hire T-Rex to come and play at the first ever Glastonbury um, because he used to find that listening to them really helped with the milking. <laughs> so that's my story. Anyway, just to give it more relevance even than music, I want to say that what I think uh, has been really interesting about the year is this move towards live streaming. Musicians have gone online in order to connect with their um, listeners. But also in China, you see this extraordinary burst of live streaming in order to sell products like lipstick and anything else. So I think that that's been one of the enduring changes of the year, I think, will be the, the predominance of live streaming in our lives going forward. That was bloody cryptic, yeah. Henry, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Alice was worried about this, but bloody hell. I was going to say, you're going to be in trouble with my dad, Henry. He thought mine was convoluted. So, uh... um, I, I do apologise. But, uh, but anyway, thank you very much indeed for your gamesmanship. We're at the cusp of, of a new year. What about your predictions, your forecasts for 2021? Let me start with you, Simon. Well, my prediction is, is quite a simple one. Uh, if you look at the EIU, the Economist Intelligence Unit growth forecasts for 2020, it looks as if just about a dozen countries are going to register positive growth this year. Remarkable. You know, 180 countries are going to see their economies shrink. My prediction for next year is that it's going to be the exact inverse of that, but a little better. Fewer than 11 countries will, will contract next year. Far more than 180 will, will actually see positive growth. It's going to be a massive rebound. And a one thing that I've seen in China is that when the virus is controlled, uh, more or less, things get back to normal remarkably quickly. There's a lot of pent-up demand, a lot of pent-up energy that people are waiting to expend. And so uh, this is as much a hope as it is a prediction. Uh, but, you know, the big hope is that a lot of things that we've been analyzing and looking at as economic problems will see that actually they were not economic. It was always about the pandemic and concerns about fragile balance sheets and overstretched corporates, ballooning central bank balance sheets, all of those concerns will, will look like trifles by the end of next year. We're with you there, Simon. And I will give you my prediction, which is a lot uh, tamer in a sense than yours. But I think that 5G will be a big story next year. It was supposed to be the story this year. This is the 5G telecoms infrastructure and 5G phones and all these things which are supposed to speed up our connectivity. There was always this question about what the use case was for 5G. 
And I feel as though this year has really given us a sense of what is the use case for 5G because we are so much more connected. Um, but the other thing is, is that with the sidelining of Huawei, which will probably continue next year, even under the Biden administration in America and uh, elsewhere in the West, I do think that new technologies or new approaches will emerge, such as this geeky concept of open RAN, the virtualization of networks. You'll be hearing a lot more about that next year. So I think that we will actually find that 5G has a big use case and it becomes a dynamic part of our business landscape. Alice, how about you? Um, I was tempted to make a prediction either about sort of Tesla or the stock market more generally, but I'm not foolish enough to attempt to predict the direction of either. Uh, so instead, my prediction for 2021 is that there will be a frenzy of M&A activity. 2021 will be the year of the deal. A lot of deals were scuppered or delayed this year. Bosses were fo focusing mostly on surviving the pandemic, not on strategic acquisitions. One consequence of the pandemic as well is that there was sort of a bonkers amount of debt and equity issuance as companies built up these sort of war chests of cash to survive the pandemic. A record trillion dollars of equity has been issued so far in 2020, a 50% increase over the last year. And for the firms that have sort of weathered this storm, as, as Simon suggests, you know, things are probably going to get better in 2021. And that cash is probably going to start burning a mighty big hole in some bosses' pockets. And the year of the deal will raise some interesting questions for investors. Are these deals sensible? And also for regulators, are they anti-competitive? So that's what I'm looking forward to in 2021. Fantastic. Year of the deal. What about you, Patrick? I've got two things I want to mention. One is I think it might be the year of the bottleneck. So as all of that pent-up energy is released, as all of the spending happens, as everything revs up, we're going to find there are bottlenecks in the economy and it's just going to struggle to surge alongside demand. And it might be in the aerospace industry where suddenly people are going to block book flights. It could be in the logistics industry. So already container shipping prices are going through the roof. The other thing is tech is going to get more competitive. One consequence of the digital surge is going to be more capital flooding in, more companies experimenting. Uh, and that is going to raise a really interesting issue by the end of next year, which is whether the tech giants' profitability and margins might start to fall because there's more competition. That's fascinating if you're in government because there's a big push to do more antitrust action, possibly just as it's starting to get competitive. So as always, behind the curve. And it's also really interesting if you're an investor because somewhere between a quarter and a third of global stock markets are now comprised of the big tech firms. Well, to find out if any of us approach super forecaster status, you're going to have to listen in to Money Talks in 2021. Let's end, though, with a round of applause for our panellists and big thanks to Patrick Fowles, Simon Rabinovich and Alice Fullwood. Thanks for joining us and a very Merry Christmas. Thank you, Henry. Merry Thank Christmas, you, everyone. Henry. Thanks, Henry. Merry Christmas. Happy it's New a Year. And just before we go, this is a bit of a rare glimpse behind the veil. Um, can we also say thank you to the producers of Money Talks? That is Amika Shortino-Nolan, Ellie Clifford and Sandra Shmueli. Thank you all. And if you haven't already got one under the tree, our bumper Christmas W issue of The Economist is now out on all good socially distanced newsstands and online at economist.com. Our gift to you is a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. 
Do keep tuning in to Economist Radio podcasts over the holidays as we've turned some of these incredible stories from the Christmas edition into audio adventures for you to listen to at your leisure. I'm Henry Trix, and from all of us here at Money Talks, thank you for listening and Merry Christmas. This is The Economist. Well done, Thank Henry. Right. <laughs> Merry Christmas, um, well everyone. Well done, everyone. That was fantastic. The Rabinovich slipper will be with me for years to come. <laughs> <laughs>